Amen. If you could just stand to your feet one more time. We're on this theme of worship. And I just thank God for the beautiful worship that we've been able to enter in these past two weeks as we speak about worship. How many people have felt the spirit and truth of worship? Awesome to know that um, we're able to be in something that we're speaking about. And we're going to read from John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. This, this text is coming from, or these, these two verses is coming from a passage of scripture that we read last week. I'm not going to go into the whole uh, context of last week of these verses. But we're going we're gonna to pull from them something that Jesus says. And then we're going to go to John chapter 12. We're going to read verses 1 through 7, okay? So I'm just using the first verses kind of to help us transition into today. I said last week that we would be on this theme of worship. I knew it was going to be two weeks. And so we're just going to pull two verses from the passage that we used last week. We're going to use them to connect today. And then we're going to read also from John chapter 12. Amen. And so when we pick up in verse 23 of John chapter 4, this is Jesus speaking, just so you know. I know I'm trying to just, I'm just throwing you in the text, but this is Jesus himself speaking. Jesus says, but the hour is coming and now is. So I want you to know we're still in that now is moment. This was said 2,000 years ago, but we're still somehow presently connected to these words. And it's time. The hour is coming. This is what Jesus says to the Samaritan woman who he's met at the well and has offered her living water. She says she wants to drink. But she knows in order for her to taste in this new salvation through the living water that God, that Jesus is offering her, she needs to understand worship. And so she asks him a question about worship. And this is Jesus responding to the question about worship. So the hour is coming and now is. We're still in this hour. We're still in this moment. He says when the true worshipers will worship who? The Father in spirit and in truth. Just put up two fingers. Put up two fingers. Your two fingers that you're holding up represent the answer to true worship. Jesus says spirit and truth. Wow. And what would be amazing if Jesus went on to explain all of that, right? <laughs> that all the next chapters, it's like, okay, the next 10 verses about what he means by spirit and then the next verses after that will define, spelled out, what does he mean by truth? But no, he just throws it out there. True worshipers worship God in spirit and in truth. I wish I could just say, hey, turn to your Bible and chapter this will tell you and define spirit. And turn a chapter this and it will define truth. But the reality is that worshiping God in spirit and truth is going to be a personal journey. A personal journey for every individual. And here's the thing about worship. It doesn't look the same for all of us. That's what I'm learning. I'm realizing that worship is not something to be copied, so to say. Here's another truth about worship. You can't borrow worship. You can't borrow someone else's worship if you don't want to worship. We can borrow songs from each other and we can sing them corporately. But true worship cannot be borrowed. If you're not in a spirit of worship, there's no way to borrow worship. You can't rent worship either for $9.95. <laughs> there's no, you can't purchase that on Amazon Prime for the month. You know, God's been good to me, so I'm just going to purchase. I'm going to rent some praise for this month. 
But discovering the spirit and truth of worship is going to be the journey of a lifetime that you live as you pursue Jesus. And if you want to say, okay, well, what verse of the Bible tells me and explains spirit and truth? You're going to realize that that's going to be a journey too. That from the beginning to the end of the book, the Bible that we have, it's a story about true worship and spirit and truth. And so you're going to have to pursue worship in your own life, and you're going to have to pursue what God means by spirit and truth as you look through scriptures. So I'm just trying to help you over these two weeks. It's impossible. This is going to take a journey of a lifetime. There's no way I could really do justice to explaining worship. I mean, worship goes so deep, I, I can't even understand it really for you. It's something that I'm going to have to pursue as I pursue God. And God will reveal things about spirit and truth of worship. But we'll try, all right? Amen? We want to try? There's some things that could help us. We don't have to be completely in the dark. And now let's go to John chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, and then we'll... Oh, actually, uh, 1 through 8, I'm sorry. 1 through 8. And the text that we're going to read right now, I think, is one of the greatest displays that we have captured in our Bibles of someone who worships Jesus in spirit and in truth. Okay? I believe this, patch, this passage of Scripture captures the extravagance and the purity of worshiping God in spirit and in truth. John chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. It reads, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, uh, was where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha, Martha served. But Lazarus was the one who sat at the table with him. Look at verse 3. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of, the, one of his disciples, and it's going to tell you who, Judas Iscariot, now, who do we, who's Judas? We know later on that Judas would be the betrayer. He would be the one to sell Jesus out for some money, betray him with the kiss. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? It's like, this woman's crazy. We'll talk about that little later this he said not that he cared for the poor but because he was a thief and had the money box he was the treasurer of Jesus's church <laughs> the treasurer was a thief it says and he used to take what was put in it oh my goodness <laughs> this was Judas but Jesus said let her alone. She has kept this day for the day of my burial. For the poor, this is verse 8, for the poor you will have with you always, but me you do not have always. Amen. 
Amen. God bless you. You guys may be seated. Last week, we really focused on the spirit and, and the truth. And one of the things I want us to keep in mind, Jesus just drops this bomb in John chapter 12. The Samaritan woman last week in John chapter 4, I encourage you to read that. Jesus tells his disciples, I have to go through Samaria. The long history is that the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along. Last week, I tried my best to give you a history lesson. Thank you for enduring that. But the point is, Jesus offers this Samaritan woman living water, amen, and she says, I will drink. I'll take some of this. And when she says, I'll take of the living water, Jesus says, well, why don't you go and invite your husband and have a drink too? Then she tells him, uh, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, well, you have answered correctly. I know that about you. You do not have a husband. As a matter of fact, you have had five husbands already. And the one that you're with right now is not even your own. Kind of scandalous. The woman realizes that the only way for Jesus to know that he has to be a prophet. Because she has kept her secret well. No one else knows. So in order for Jesus to know such things about her, he has to be a man of God. He has to be a prophet. Uh, in the conversation, Jesus did tell the woman earlier, if you knew, because the conversation started like this, Jesus goes meets her at the well and says, can I have a drink of water? Then the woman says, well, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Why are you even talking with me? This makes no sense. And then Jesus tells her, if you knew who I were, or if you knew who was offering you this water, you would ask me for a drink. And that opens the door for Jesus to offer her living water. This is a picture of salvation, okay? This is a picture of Jesus extending grace to someone who, by the eyes of everyone, is not worthy of grace. She's a Samaritan. She's a dog. She's a half-breed. There's some errors in her worship system, her and her people. They have polluted their worship. They have, throughout the years of history, they have brought uh, idol worship into worship with God, and they try to mix it and say it's okay. And so it wasn't okay because the purity of the truth of their worship was corrupted, right? They brought in idolatry. They brought in Baal, and they mixed it all with God. There's no longer truth, pure truth in their worship. You got to understand that. And then Jesus was a Jew, but there was a problem with the Jews too in Jerusalem. Their hearts were... Yeah, they had a, uh, they try to keep the purity of their system of worship, but man, their hearts were so far away from God. They did it religiously and they did it right and they didn't contaminate the worship system by bringing in false gods, but their hearts were so far away. And so when we read in John 4 that Jesus says true worshipers need to worship God in spirit and in truth, what you need to understand is this. Jesus is literally addressing the worship system of the Samaritans and the Jews, and he's addressing their failure in both. So I'm going to ask you guys a question. The Samaritans, if you had to answer what went wrong with their worship system, would you say it was the spirit of their worship or the truth of their worship? The truth of their worship is where they went wrong. Now, you also have to understand when Jesus says spirit and truth, the, the spirit part, he's referring to the heart of man. The, 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 you know, the passion of man to worship God. And so, yes, the Samaritans did have passion, did have heart. They were committed to worshiping God faithfully. They were all in, but the problem was they were all in with 
truth being corrupted in their worship. And so that didn't work. And so when Jesus says true worshipers have to worship in both spirit and in truth, he's trying to correct their worship. He's like, you guys got the spirit, you Samaritans, but something went wrong with your truth. Is that understood? Now let's think about the Jews in Jerusalem. Because Jesus told her the time is coming where you're not going to worship on this mountain. And they were standing in Samaria. He's addressing their worship system. He goes, but you're also not going to worship in Jerusalem either. And that's when he says the hour is coming and now is where true worshipers worship the Father. Where? In spirit and in truth. And so what was the problem with the Jews? If I ask you another question, well, what went wrong with the Jews and the Pharisees and the people at the temple? They were doing the prayers all right. They were acknowledging God. They were fasting. There's scriptural evidence throughout the Gospels. They had a temple. They had an offering system. The system was right. But Jesus says to them, they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are what? Far from me. So what would you say is the problem with the worship system of the Jews? Is it the spirit or is it the truth? It's the spirit. Their hearts weren't right. And so now all of a sudden Jesus says, here's the answer to fixing your worship. The answer is you got to worship God in spirit and in truth. Great, Jesus, can you define that? It's really hard just to pull one single passage of scripture to do that. This is why worshiping God in spirit and truth is going to be your life journey of discovery. As you get closer to God, God will reveal to you about the spirit and truth of worship. But it's not just going to be a personal journey that he leaves you to figure out on your own, like just wander out into the woods and push, push, push until you learn spirit and truth worship. No, it's through a journey of the word of God. And that's a difficult journey. It's not easy to try to find the spirit and truth of worship. But he says, to get worship right, spirit and truth. And he just hangs everything on this. Proper worship, spirit and truth. Do you know Jesus did this before? When they asked Jesus, hey, what's the greatest commandment? You know what Jesus said? He responds in Matthew chapter 22. Love, the first is this. Love your God with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind. He goes, and the second is like it. And love your neighbor as yourself. And then he goes on to say, on these two commandments hang all of the law and all of the prophets. Do this again, too. So the greatest commandment is loving God with all that you have and loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Great. Is there a verse now that follows that says, hey, this is how you love God? With all your heart, mind, soul, and spirit? Is there a verse now that says, hey, and this is how you love your neighbor? This will be a journey of a lifetime for us as we pursue to love God and pursue to love our neighbor. But again, God doesn't send you out into the woods to figure that out by yourself. The word of God itself, a journey through the scriptures, will teach you what it means to love God and what it means to love your neighbor. And a matter of fact, he says... All of the law and all that the prophets spoke about, that is how you understand how to love God and love your neighbor. All of it was culminating to loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. Who's ready for the task? Who has said, I'm going to love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and spirit? Who has said, I'm going to love my neighbor as yourself? If you try to do that on your own understanding, if you try to do that on your own moral uh, standards, I, I can promise you, we will fail. It has to be a lifelong pursuit, and that you have to journey through Scripture 
Because why the whole law and everything that the prophets spoke about, that was them teaching you how to love God and love your neighbor. But he just summed it up in two. And so the same is true when the issue of worship is, 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 is brought to Jesus. Well, how do I worship then? He says spirit and truth. Well, how do I understand spirit and truth? It's a lifelong pursuit. And it's a pursuit that you're going to have to look through scripture. And that's today what I hope to kind of do with you. So let me give you an example of my worship being wrong in spirit and in truth. What if I came in here and I got up and said, we're going to worship God and I'm going to pray right now. And I'm going to give God all the glory, right? I'm going to give God all the glory. I'm going to worship God. How many people have come to the church and said, I'm coming to worship? I know there are days that you don't feel like it, but there are days where you're like, you're ready. Like, come on, put the music on. Like, hurry up. Let's go already. TDP worship, I'm ready. Like, before the countdown is over, you're in the front and you're on your knees, right? You came in like, I'm not talking to nobody. I'm going into my place. Right? You come ready to worship. How many people? Can you imagine if I came in here and I came ready to worship? I got here early. I came to prayer at 7. You were sleeping, but I was here early, right? So I'm already ahead of you. I'm ahead of you, okay? I, came, I, I got here in worship. And then during the time where when we finish prayer, right, Ryan has finished prayer, while all you guys go and chit-chat in the back, no, I'm still on my knees. I'm ahead of you again, right? And then the worship is about to start. They haven't hit press live yet, and I'm already in the front before the person, the worshiper's in the front. I'm already ahead three times now, right? And imagine they invite me to do the opening prayer. And I'm like, I'm so ready, right? My spirit is there. My heart is there. I'm passionate. I'm fire. I'm already sweating. I haven't started preaching, right? Can you imagine this, right? And then when I go and I do the opening prayer, and I say, I just want to thank God for the salvation of my soul. I want to thank you, God, because you have saved me by your amazing blood. And I want to thank you because I am saved, because your word tells me I am saved if I go to the dwelling place church. Father, I just worship you. Can you imagine if I said that? I thank you, God, because you saved me by your blood, and I thank you because I'm saved because I go to the dwelling place church. Can you imagine what God would do in heaven? He'd be like, uh. He would say, I'm so glad, Ezekiel, you have the spirit to worship, but there's something wrong about the truth of your worship. You think you're saved because of my blood and the church you go to. And so that would be an error in my worship system. Imagine I live my life thinking that I'm saved because of the church that I go to. That I'm saved because of Christ's blood and because I rep TDP. No, that would be wrong. Now, could you imagine if the same thing happened? I get here and I'm like, I'm here for prayer. Oh, it's time of worship. Fine, Ryan asked me to do the opening prayer. And then I get up here and say, oh, I just want to come before you and present the service in prayer. I thank God who has saved me, and I know that I'm saved by the blood of Jesus alone. And then I went and sat down. You want to know what would also happen? God will look in heaven and be like, well, that's very true. But your heart is far from me. And there you have an example of where I either went wrong in the spirit of my worship, my heart, or I went wrong in the truth of my worship and my understanding of God and his relationship to me. And so what's so important then that we understand that worship has to do with our hearts being right before God and also doing it in the truth of God's revelation of himself. We don't get to make up who God is. 
We don't get to make up how God saves us. We don't get to make up the nature of God. We don't get to make God more angry than he is. We don't get to make up God being less merciful than he is. We don't get to make up God being less uh, righteous than he is. We don't get to do that. Scripture tells us the truth of all who God is. And so when we worship God, we must worship under the truth of who Scripture says he is. So that helps us when we worship be in truth. And so I got to know God in scripture so that when I go to worship him, whether in song or whether through the expression of my life, I'm not doing it with a corrupt understanding of who God is. And then I got to also make sure that I'm not doing this because, you know, my parent has my arm tied behind my back. So you better sing. <laughs> I mean, if you have a child, it's good that you do that sometimes to kind of just teach them. But eventually they're going to have to want to worship on their own. Amen. And so if we're here forced, if you're here because you feel like you have to be here, then I think you have to present your heart to God. Amen? Now, let's give a definition of worship. This is the definition I gave you last week. If we were to define worship, I wish there was a single verse that I could just pull it out. The closest thing that we got is Jesus says spirit and truth. But let's define it out. Let's explain it. Worship is defined as Worship is the glorifying of God, not the glorifying of man, not the glorifying of self, not the glorifying of things, not the glorifying of creation. No, worship is the glorifying of God. He is the beginning. He is the end. He's the first and he's the last. He's the creator of all things. And Isaiah says, besides him, there is no other. He's God and he's God all by himself. So we worship is the glorifying of God. Not a people, not a church, not a man, not a prophet, not a pastor. No, worship is glorifying God. Expressed how? Through song? That's an, that is an expression. But really what we talked about last week is that worship is expressed through the entire life of the believer. So what that means is how I live my life is is, 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 is helping to define my worship. Not just when I sing for 20 minutes. Not just when I turn on a praise song. That's part of worship because it's part of what I do. And so even when I sing, my heart needs to be right. There needs to be truth in my worship. This needs to be true for us as a church when we do this corporately. But more so, worship is not about a moment. Worship is not a, about a time. Worship is about a who. And it's my whole life. It's the totality of my life. That's why last week we said that worship, don't see worship as a, like a spiritual discipline. Reading your word is a spiritual discipline. Or praying is a spiritual discipline. Fasting is a spiritual discipline. But don't put worship as a spiritual discipline because then what ends up happening is this. You'll do like I did for most of my life is try to squeeze worship in. When in all reality, my Bible reading, my prayer, my congregating, my fasting, my songs, all of it together culminates to a life of worship. And then the definition we have says, with a fully surrendered heart. What does that have to do with spirit or truth? Spirit. And in the revealed biblical truth of God, that has to do with what? The truth. So we have a definition telling us that worship is to God alone. Amen? It's about my entire life being, being worship unto God, and it's being done in spirit and truth. Surrendered heart. And with a uh, revealed biblical truth of God, we don't get to make up who God is. Are you standing with me? You're still there. And so that's, this means that worship must be my lifestyle. All of me should worship. 
We're not so much called to do worship. We're meant to live in worship. Amen? And so this whole theme of worship, I said this last week. When you look at your Bible, it's a book, the whole book. I said, what's the Bible about? Have you ever asked yourself that question? I mean, there's so many verses that seem crazy, so many chapters that make no sense to your culture today. Like, have you ever read a verse and said, why am I reading this? What does this have to do with anything? Yeah, many of us. This is why more than 50% of Christians have never read the Bible entirely. It just so hard, so difficult, doesn't make sense, you don't, you don't understand, you don't know how it fits into the story. Well, I want to tell you this, that your whole entire Bible, our whole entire Bible, is a story about redemption. Redemption of God, redeeming humanity, his creation, who he loved, and that is expressed through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen? So the whole book of the Bible, all of those Genesis, all the prophets, the kings, all of it, I know it's like hard to kind of figure out, but all of it is pointing to our salvation and redemption that's in Jesus Christ. In the book of Luke, this is so fascinating. After Jesus resurrected, I don't have the chapter. I wrote it down and I took it out of my notes. I said, oh, I don't want to have too many verses for them. I wish I had it down, but I believe it's Luke chapter 28. You can search it. It comes after the resurrection. Hear me? It comes after the resurrection and Jesus appears. And he's, he's walking. He's walking down the Emmaus Road. How many people have heard of the Emmaus Road? Search for it. Make sure I'm right. Luke 28. He's walking down the road with two men. And they're talking, and Jesus just kind of walks next to them. He kind of, he seems like he's being nosy. Now, he's the resurrected Christ. And they're talking about all the things that have happened about Jesus' resurrection. And Jesus kind of like, so what are you guys talking about? And they're like, well, haven't you heard about, about Jesus and how he was crucified and all that stuff? And they don't realize that what they're talking about is Jesus, who's now standing next to them, resurrected. They're so lost in their fear and sadness that Jesus himself is standing next to them, and they're crying about how he was crucified. And you know what it says? you got to find it. It says that then what Jesus did with them in their walk, it says he told them how all of the scriptures, all of the law, all of the prophets, how all of it was about him. That's fascinating. That's absolutely fascinating. He, with those men, told them, explained to them how all the scriptures, in other words, that Old Testament book that you hate reading, that, that Old Testament book that we die out in uh, <laughs> ending of Exodus, you die out in Leviticus. Well, I'm going to mention that, but die out. He talks to them and he explains how all of it was about him fascinating at least to me it is because that makes me want to read how all of that was pointing to him the books that you like the books that you don't like all those crazy parts all were about him fascinating go into this great study of of God's word but from the very beginning speaking about worship you think worship just you think Jesus created worship in John chapter 4, spirit and truth? No. The whole Bible is a book of redemption, and here's the other part that it's all about. It's all about worship. Your Bible is all about redemption and worship. And as you read through the pages, you're going to see this theme. 
God's redeeming plan, his redemptive plan, working through the lives of all these men that you read about, and you're like, this just seems like a weird story. No, it's all going somewhere. It's going somewhere. It's going somewhere. The seed of Jesus is being carried through Abraham, through Sarah's barren womb at one point. Like, it's all going somewhere. It's going to end up. It's going to culminate. It's gonna, there's going to be this amazing climax, and Jesus is the Savior. It's absolutely beautiful, our Bible. But the theme of worship is there. God, creator of heaven and earth, and him choosing the people. But in order for them to, 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 you know, to, to, to be in their grace and their salvation and their deliverance and all these great things that God has for them as his people, that all hangs on their worship. It's like God has a creation. He's created us for worship. And so you see these themes, you see this theme, underlying theme of the Bible. And so right in the very beginning, the first four pages, within the first four pages of our Bible, we are introduced to the theme of worship. Now, is worship about a song? Please say no. Is worship about a song only? No. Worship is about a lifestyle. So whether I sing a song that's included in my worship is, what about offering? Offering is also part of my, our worship, our preaching, all that we do. How you live your life is all part of your worship. So when you read stuff in the Bible that says, oh, and now this person presented an offering, I want you to take away the normal thinking like, oh, it's worship, it's offering time. I wonder when they're going to get to worship. No, you got to understand that even the offering was understood as worship, clearly. Now, in the first four pages of our Bible, when you get to Genesis chapter 4, we're introduced to something special. Now, I told you worship is deep. Spirit and truth means so much. But there is something foundational to true worship, and that's what I want to capture today. Let's look at Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 to 7. How many people heard the children's story of Cain and Abel? Right? You think Cain and Abel is a, is a TDP kid's story. No! <laughs> it's not just a kiddie story. It's like we never hear any sermons on them. You only learn about them in kids' church. But I want to tell you right now that Cain and Abel is not a kiddie story. Right here we're going to see the underlying tone of worship. Now we also said this last week. There's worship that is acceptable to God, and there's worship that's unacceptable to God. Oh, no. What do we do now? Acceptable worship and unacceptable worship. Well, I just thought I could give anything to God, and he'll take it. I wish I could say that because it would make life that much easier for you and me. But if we believe that, then we're steering away from the truth. And so... Yeah, I might have the heart, and I just want to do anything and give anything, but there's a truth that's revealed in Scripture about who God is. So that means I can't just give anything, because if I do, then I become like the Samaritans. And so if I'm a believer, and we say, I live to worship. How many of you say, I live to worship? We live to worship, to worship you, I live, right? We got songs that say, we live to worship. Well, that's good, because Jesus requires worship. I'm glad you live to worship because God lives to be worshipped. So this could be a perfect pair if worship is done right. And so if you live to worship 
and God lives to be worshipped, then we got to know what is acceptable and what's not. Because what a shame would it be if you live to worship, but everything that you offered God didn't accept? What if everything I brought to God, he wasn't accepting it? Ah, that's, that's a hard reality. And so we're introduced to this very principle about worship in the beginning. Not in John chapter 4. Not in the New Testament all of a sudden. It's like, let me tell you what worship is about. In the very beginning, we learn that there is acceptable worship and unacceptable worship. In other words, there's worship that God receives and worship that God rejects. And so we want to make sure that since we live to worship, that we're bringing something that is pleasing to God. Look at this. Genesis 4. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to who? To the Lord. Now, don't think of this as offering time. Think of this as what? Worship time, right? So in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain came, that Cain came worshiping of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Now look at verse 4. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. Weird. Right? And look what it says. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. What does this mean? God saw Abel's worship as acceptable, and God saw Cain's worship as unacceptable. He respected Abel's rejected Cain's. It goes on to say in verse 6, so the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Oh, hold on, I I skipped something. Verse 5, but he did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? Look what it goes on to say. If you do well, or in some of your translations will say this, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted, and if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and his desire is for you, but you should rule all over it. The way the story ends, Cain spirals in his anger and in his rage. And what does he do? He kills his brother Abel in the field. But the question to answer is why did God respect and receive Abel's worship, but he rejected Cain's? I wish the next verses just told you because here God tells Cain, if you do what is right, I'm thinking the next verses are going to explain that. Clearly there was something right about Abel's and something wrong about Cain's. What are the verses that follow that tell us and write it out? This is why I told you, understanding worship, the spirit and truth of worship, is going to be a lifetime of discovery. And you're going to have to search deeper in scripture. There's really not one verse to explain it for you. But what we do have is these clues. We have scriptural clues. Clearly, there was something different between Cain and Abel's. Do two again. There's always this comparison. There's these two things going on. You have an offering or worship that God receives from Abel, one that he rejects. Unacceptable. I don't want this. Come on, God. Give the guy a break. At least he worshiped. At least he brought something. This is why I was telling you, we have to know that we can't just bring anything to God. And just because we brought it, then God has to take it. I wish it worked that way. I would be so much a better worshiper if it was that way. But it's not in the truth of God's word. Is this hard to hear that God actually rejected a man's worship? He was bringing it to the right Lord. It was, he wasn't bringing his offering to Baal. He wasn't you know, presenting his offering to some false god. No, he brought it to God, but God rejected it. 
Cain brought it to God and God received it. So our only clues are to look at the kinds of offering. You got to do, your, we got we, we to dig, we got to look. And here we're going to see something foundational. When we look at the offerings, we're going to see a principle about worship. And this is a principle I want to get at. What does Cain bring? Cain, like his father Adam, becomes a tiller of the ground. And the Bible says that he brought an offering from the crops of the ground. What did Cain do in order to produce that? He actually had to work the ground, right? He had to work the ground. Actually, if you read the chapter before in Genesis chapter 3, God curses the ground because of Adam's disobedience. And he tells Adam, now from the sweat of your brow in thorns and thistles are you going to reap a harvest from the ground. So that makes you... That, that gives you the awareness that if Adam had to work hard now, harder than before, because as a consequence of his disobedience to God, just to produce a crop, can you imagine all the work that Cain had to go through to bring that offering? God, cut the guy some slack. Can you imagine the thorns in Cain's fingers? Can you imagine all the sweat from his brow in order to bring this offering, and then God rejects it? Come on, God. How many of you sometimes feel you have worked so hard to bring worship? Now look at Abel. What does Abel do? Abel was a tender of sheep. He was a shepherd. And when he goes to bring his offering to God, you know what he does? He takes one of his animals, he sacrifices it, kills it, and presents that as an offering, and God receives it. So a principle is established here. This is also a picture. This is beautiful. This is also a picture of how we're made right with God. Cain brought something from the works of his hand. Abel brought something in sacrifice. Do you see a picture here? Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 when he's speaking about salvation, Paul says this, for it's by grace you are saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast, and it's not of works. So God rejects the man who brought his offering through works, but he receives the man who brought it in sacrificial faith. This is pointing. This is a foreshadowing. This is a picture. And what is the underlying picture of worship that God receives? It must involve sacrifice. One offering was done in works. Our salvation is not merited to us because of our works, because of our good deeds, because of our toils, because of our own righteousness, because of how much we try to be right before God. And so Cain is actually foreshadowing a salvation that does not come by works, but Abel's worship is a foreshadowing of God receiving us through a sacrifice. That's amazing. And now you got this principle. That within true worship, sacrifice is somewhere at the foundation. Okay? Another passage that's very interesting as we travel through this long journey through scripture. How many of us know that God, right, Abraham was given a son of promise? This was not Abraham's seed. This was God's seed placed in Sarah's womb. How many people know that? There was nothing wrong with Abram because when Sarah said, hey, just sleep with our servant, she was able to get pregnant. So there was nothing wrong with Abraham's seed. It was fine. It produced a son and they called him Ishmael. So a lot of people will say things like, oh, Abraham could not have children. What you mean? He got Ishmael. 
There's nothing wrong there. The problem was Sarah's barren womb. But the promise spoken was God's seed placed in Sarah's womb. And so we know that she gives birth to the son. The son of promise is Isaac. He's the son of promise. And they're rejoicing. They laugh, right? Sarah laughs again, and it's beautiful. And then you know what God tells Abraham to do? He tells him to now sacrifice his son. This sounds crazy. This sounds absolutely crazy. God, why would you even do that? We just waited. Just waited 25 years on a promise, and now that I have it, now I got to sacrifice him? God, you are losing your mind. Right? This doesn't make sense. Why would you do that? But this is what God requires of Abram. And the Bible tells us that Abram moves in faith. Look at it again, the principle. He moves in sacrificial faith. And so Abram goes with two of his servants, and they're going to go to a mountain. He has Isaac with the wood on his own back, which is a foreshadowing of Jesus carrying his own cross. Those are pictures here. He puts the wood on Isaac's back, and, he ta- and he's getting ready to go up the mountain. And look what he says. Look how he describes this. He's literally going to sacrifice his son. How many of you would go and sacrifice your son? Because God told you to. You waited 25 years on a promise, and now God's asking you to sacrifice the promise. Look how Abraham describes this moment. How would you describe this moment? What would you call this? What would you tell your servants when they say, where are you going? This is hell. This is terrible. This is going to be the worst day of my life. That's how I would describe that moment. I would say, I can't believe God. I would tell the servants, I don't understand why I'm doing this. I probably would say it angry and enraged, confused. But look how Abraham describes the moment of sacrifice. Genesis 22, verses 2 to 5. And he said, then he said, this is God speaking to Abraham. Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. And I know you love him. I'm going to acknowledge that you love him. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So now you got to also understand that this is not just an offering time. This is what? Worship time. Right? So Abraham rose early in the morning and he saddled his donkey and he took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and the splint, the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Look at this verse four. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to the young men, the two servants, can you imagine what he's going to say? I'll be like, pray for me. I don't know how I'm going to do this. Pray for me. This is horrible. Curse God as we go. But look what Abraham says. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and what? Worship. Worship. And we will come back to you. So now you see another picture where what looks like hell to someone, where the sacrifice here. Abraham is describing as worship. And you see this theme again, this underlining theme that worship has a foundation of sacrifice. And the way the story goes later on, Abraham gets him on the altar, straps him down. He has a knife in his hand and an angel calls out from heaven. Verse 12, we can read it. The angel says to Abraham, and he said, do not lay your hand on the lad 
or do anything to him. For I know, he goes, for now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And so in Abraham's heart, the sacrifice was done and it is honored and God receives it. It was acceptable. Why? Because it was sacrificial. Long story continues. From Abraham, you get Isaac. From Isaac, you get Jacob. From Jacob, you get the 12 sons. Eventually, long story short, they become enslaved as a nation in Egypt. They're, bond, they're in bondage. Pharaoh is the king. They are working to build the cities of Ramses for him. It's 400 years, a total of 10 generations in slavery. Can you imagine what the Hebrews saw around them as God? Polytheistic in worship was Egypt. And, 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 and they had a God of the sun. They had a God of this and a God of that. And, 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 and so the way how the Egyptians would show and reveal God was through statues and through images. And so they would worship the statues and worship the idols because the idols to them were gods. And can you imagine now the Hebrew people, 10 generations, born in slavery, how their picture of God is what? A statue and an idol. And so God comes and chooses Moses as a deliverer to send to Pharaoh to command him to let the people go. And it's a story of deliverance, right? It's a story of salvation. Many of us know this story, right? It's also a picture of God's grace later on to save his people who cry out to him that have been afflicted. This is a picture. It's a shadowing. It's pointing. Again, I told you, all of the passages of Scripture are pointing to something, to the, to the, to the revelation of Jesus Christ. Don't fall asleep yet. It's okay. And so what does God tell Moses to tell Pharaoh? Hey, walk into Egypt, walk to the king, and tell him this. Exodus 20, uh, Exodus 8, verse 1. I love this passage. So remember I said the Bible is about two things, redemption and worship. Moses is coming to bring deliverance to the people. Look how he's supposed to speak to Pharaoh about it. Then the Lord said to Moses, this is Exodus chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. So their deliverance and their freedom and their salvation is all about bringing them into a place of worship. So our salvation that we have today, the grace that we have and the redemption found through Jesus Christ is to bring us into a place of worship. Not just a discipline, but a lifestyle of worship. A life committed to worship. That's what the salvation is all about. And if we don't like worshiping here, I got bad news. When we get to heaven, it's about worship too. So if you have a hard time worshiping here, the last thing that I want is on that day, God says, you didn't worship me down here, so this ain't going to work out from, for you up here. Depart from me. I never knew you. Right? Wouldn't that be terrible if we, give, we gave worship and, it, and God wasn't accepting it the whole time? But God, I did a miracle. It was all unto worship for you. And I casted out demons all in worship to you. And God says, depart from me. I never knew you. There was something wrong with the spirit or something wrong with the truth. And there was no sacrifice at the foundation of what you gave me. And so in Exodus chapter 20, 12 o'clock already. I'll move quick now. 
Exodus chapter 20, God now is going to reveal himself to the children of Israel. Moses takes them out. They're in the wilderness. God brings Moses up to Mount Sinai, thunderings and lightnings, and God starts to speak to Moses. And here from the Ten Commandments, the first four, three. Exodus 20, verses 1 through 6 say this, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Who brought them out? God. Out of the house of bondage, referring to the Egyptians, you shall have, look, no other gods before me. He's trying to fix their worship system. Because remember, they were in Egypt for 400 years. To them, gods are statues, idols. And gods, there's multiple gods. There's a god of this, god of that. And God's like, no, I'm going to fix this right now. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. He's trying to take their polytheistic understanding of God and bring it into a oneness of who God is. You shall make, look, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or anything or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water and uh, under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. And so he's like, you guys got deliverance? Let me fix your worship system. It's me alone, no statues. Don't make a statue of no sun. Don't make a statue of no cloud. Don't make a statue of no fish. Don't make a statue of no tree. Don't make a statue of anything that you saw, that, that you saw in Egypt. No, 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 no. One God, me alone, I delivered you. You cannot make an image of me. No idols. How do you think this goes for the children of Israel? Terrible. <laughs> Terrible. Moses is up in the mountain. God is actually writing the law on the tablets himself. It says the hand of God writes the, the commandments out. He's up there, you know, for how long? 40 days. Moses goes up into the mountain. He hasn't come down. And you know what the people say? My goodness, what has happened to our brother? My man Mo, what happened? Where'd he go? Like, Mo's gone, and we don't know what has become of him. We need to make gods to go before us. Because they knew that Mo talked with God. And now God, Mo's gone, so God must be gone. And they're like, no, 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 we want God. We don't care about Mo, but we want God back. They, they tell Aaron, Moses' brother, we don't know what happened to your brother, but hey, he's a man like us. We need, we need God back. That's who we want, we want back. So uh, what can we do here to get God back? And as Moses is in the mountain receiving the law and the instruction about not making any images of God, that's exactly what they do. I mean, Moses hasn't even come down to give the commandments to be like, don't do this, and they've already done it. Look what it says. Exodus 34, verses 4 to 6. And he received, so, they, so, so what ends up happening is they say, let's make us a statue or something. We need God in front of us. They weren't even trying to make a different God. They were just trying to make an image of God. And so their heart wasn't wrong, but their truth was wrong. They shaped God into a statue. It says, uh, and he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it uh, with an engraved tool. And now Aaron's over here shaping the thing and made a molded calf. And look what they said. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is the feast of the Lord. 
So look at this. They got this golden calf. They're, they're saying that tomorrow's a day of worship, and they're saying that this is the calf. This is the image of the God who took us out. They were worshiping the right God, trying to, but they worshiped him the wrong way. Tomorrow is the feast of the Lord. They, they rose up early the next day. They offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat, drink, and rose up to play. And so they went into worship with God molded out as a calf. And God became very angry, came down. Worship was done wrong, and it led to a great slaughter of the people. The worship was worship to God, but it lost the truth, so therefore God rejected it. He couldn't receive it. So what is at the foundation of the worship that we've been looking at? There's a foundation of, yes, there's spirit and truth, but there's a foundation of sacrifice. Foundation of sacrifice. We opened up with John chapter 12, and we're going to close here. I want to actually invite the worship team to come up, and we sang a beautiful songs today. I'd like for the worship team to kind of join as well. I know there's only two mics now, but. And we'll end this with, I would like us to sing that first song that we sang. But I brought to you John chapter 12. And in the beginning of this message, I said that this sermon has highlighted what I believe the spirit and truth of worship. And today I spoke about a foundation that lays at the bottom of spirit and truth worship. And that through scripture that we see is sacrifice. What's important to also understand is this. That when Moses was up in the mountain, he didn't just receive the law. He received a design for the entire worship system that the people would have. This is why we die out when we read the Bible. Because from Exodus chapter 20 all the way to Leviticus chapter 9, Exodus is 40 chapters. As you read all of it, it's detailed instruction all about worship. And you might say, well, cool, I like worship. Can't wait to read that. And when you go and read it, you know what you start reading? You start reading about pieces of furniture that are going to go into the temple you start reading about their measurements. You start reading about cloths and fabrics and colors and this and that and white sheets and badger skins dyed red and bronze here and this here and this like that. And you start reading about the worshipers wearing these, these weird bakery-looking outfits that are decked out, like stones here, funny-looking hats there. And you start reading about sacrifices and animals getting killed and putting blood on your right ear and putting blood on your right thumb and putting blood on your right toe. You start reading about slashing animals and burning this part and not burning that part. And this is where you're like, wait a minute, this is just weird worship. You start reading about measurements of the building and you're like, I don't care how long that thing is. You start reading about certain wood and not other wood, just this kind of wood. And you're like, but wait a minute, you're a worshiper. Don't you love to worship? Don't we live to worship? But we can't, we can't get past reading through this. 
You start hearing about this offering and that offering and a free will offering and a wave offering and a burnt offering and this offering. And it's like, wait a minute, this is just too much for me. Because why? We don't even understand that. Do we do that type of worship? Do we come here with animals and slash them and put them on the altar? You start reading about certain uh, pieces and where to put it and on this side and on that side. And, 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 and this thing needs to be positioned over here and the people need to position over there. It seems so, it's so detailed. What does this teach you? I want you to get a big picture here. It teaches us this about God. It teaches us that God absolutely cares about every single detail of worship. That's what it teaches you. That there's nothing that happens in worship that God does not care about. And the whole worship system was established around this building called the tabernacle. And the whole nation, as they were out in the wilderness, their whole deliverance, their whole salvation, all revolved around their worship system of this tabernacle that makes no sense to you and me anymore. But it reveals something about the heart of God, that God absolutely cares about everything that happens in the name of worship. And if you disregard it, if you make that thing an inch smaller, he's not going to be happy. If he says use these stones and you try to bring in your own stone, he's not going to be happy. It's just showing you about the nature of God that you just can't give to God anything. That he's, he's prescribed worship. He showed us how to worship. I do want to read this one thing. I know I said I was going to end. I was going to cut this out, but I'm not going to. From Exodus chapter 20 all the way to Leviticus chapter 9, everything is so detailed. In Exodus chapter 8, Moses has to take uh, Aaron and his sons, and he consecrates them for the worship. They have to be anointed in order to worship. They have to be consecrated, set apart. And there's a special ceremony, and this is where you see Moses slashing this animal. They're slashing that animal. And as you're reading the chapter, here's the crazy part. You're reading all this stuff, and you're like, that's wild. That's crazy. That don't make no sense. But as you keep reading, the verses don't say, as God commanded. Then Moses does this, shank, shank, dead animal, blood splattered over here, as God commanded. Put blood on your ear, blood goes on the ear, as God commanded. And everything that is done in the worship system is as God commands, not as man wills. As God wants, not as man thinks. The whole worship is built on something prescribed, directed to the detail. And Moses doesn't do anything without God commanding it to be done. Do you think God cares about worship or no? He absolutely does. And so after all of that is done, Aaron's two sons who just been consecrated in Leviticus chapter 8, look what happens in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 10. And Nadab and Abihu, these are the sons of Aaron, it says they took either of them his censer. So they had censers. This was used in the tabernacle. It says, and they put fire therein. They lit the censers on fire and put incense thereon. They put incense on it and offered, look at this, strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. I've been trying to go into study about what this strange fire means. And some of your translations, it'll say profane fire. It's also understood they came in an unauthorized way. And I realized that the reason why this was so, did God receive this? Let's read. Let's see if God says, great, thank you, guys. You have such a good heart. You just went and grabbed your censers. You put fire and you put incense and you try to bring it to me. Did, let's see. Do, does God receive it? Does God rejoice? Let's read what happens. 
And there went out a fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. God, they had a good heart. What went wrong? The clue is this, which he commanded them not. They brought something that he didn't ask them to bring. When in Leviticus chapter 9 and Leviticus chapter 8, read them. Get past the slashing and the blood splatter. And read all the times that you say, as God commanded them to do. In this case, Aaron's sons took the liberty to be like, well, I love the Lord. I am consecrated in Leviticus chapter 8 as a priest. And so this is how I think we should worship God. Let's get our censers. Let's put some and let's just offer this before the Lord. And you know what happened? Fire came down from the sky and consumed them. So what kind of worship does God accept? Do we have to do this? Do we got to slash animals today? No, thank God. Jesus became the sacrificial lamb for us. And God was satisfied in his sacrifice. What do we do today? Our worship, here it is, must come from a place of sacrifice. It must be spirit and truth, but it must have a foundation of sacrifice. In John chapter 12, what made Jesus allow this woman to bring her offering, break this beautiful fragrance over his feet, wipe his feet with her hair? You know what's at the foundation of this story? Sacrifice. You know why Judas was like, what? <laughs> I can imagine Judas seeing the oil being poured on him like. <gasps> it says it could have been sold for 300 denarii. You know what that means? That means that the oil that was in that jar, whatever, it was worth a year's salary. Now, I don't care how much money you make. All of us make different kinds of money a year. But how many of you would just pour out a year's worth of your salary on something on behalf of the Lord? This is what this woman did. So why would cause this woman to do such a thing? Well, you need to understand this. She was absolutely in love with Jesus. This is John chapter 12 and John chapter 11. You know what happens? Her brother died, Lazarus, and Jesus raised him back to life, tells them that he is the resurrection of life, and those who believe in him, though they were dead, yet shall they live. Speaking of a spiritual resurrection, and this Mary was just in awe and loved by the work of Jesus being demonstrated in her brother's life. And so that caused her to fall in love with him. It also shows you this, that it's very hard to have sacrificial worship if you're not in love with Jesus. If you're not in love with Jesus and you start making sacrifices, we become like Cain. We start doing things out of work and not out of love for the Lord. And now you're like, but I'm in church, God. You should be happy. God, I'm doing your will. God, did you count my attendance today? I showed up for three hours and I even helped with the bake sale. God, I volunteer at kids once a week and you know how I feel about kids, God. 
Do I get a bigger crown for that one, God? When you do that, that's no longer sacrifice. When you do that, that's work. That's human work and effort trying to merit a place with God that cannot be acquired through works. We can't boast about that before God. We don't realize that when we start telling, trying to remind God of everything that we did for him, you think that's sacrifice? No, that's you just showing God your works before him, and it's like, that's not how this works. True worship, spirit of truth, begins with us being in love with Jesus. And not because he resurrected our dead brother, but because he's resurrected us through him. That's what, you, you know what that story's about? I'm sorry, I'm getting long-winded here. But that story was not to teach his church that they could raise the dead. No, I'm sorry. That's not what Jesus raising Lazarus was about. It's not what this, that was not the main objective. Yes, we have power and we can do miracles. But the purpose of that story wasn't to teach you that you're going to start raising all dead people and go to graves and lift them up. That's not what the story's about. The story was about Jesus being able to say after Lazarus resurrected, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Though he were dead, yet shall he live. I'm your resurrection. So if you're in here today and say, well, Jesus didn't raise my, Jesus didn't give me that. It's not about what Jesus did for you in earthly terms is that Jesus is the resurrection of our lives and we should be in love with him for that. And because of that love for Jesus, then you know what? Everything and anything, the year's wages, our entire lives should be laid as a living sacrifice before the Lord. And that's why Jesus said to the men, don't stop her, allow her. He was seeing her worship. You know she humiliated herself by letting down her hair? That was uncustomary to do so. It was a shame for a woman to let down her hair in the presence of men. And this woman, in pure love and adoration for God, did not care, humiliated herself. She took the thing that probably had, that had the most worth in her house, and she broke it over Jesus, let down her hair, all in love, sacrificial love for him, because he was worth it. He was worth it to her. And you know something that's true about worship? Worship is lonely. The deeper you go and worship, the more people will be like, what? You're going to do what? You're going to live how? You're not going to pursue your dreams anymore? You're going you're gonna to do this thing that God told you? And the deeper you go and worship, the lonelier it will become. It got to a point where she was the only one at Jesus' feet, and the disciples were in the backdrop. And that's how life is. The more you pursue God, the deeper you go with him, you're going to see less and less people who, who you thought were disciples not understand your kind of worship, not understand your kind of sacrifice, not understand the life changes that you're making, not understanding the convictions of your heart that are being led by the Spirit of God. The deeper you go and worship, the further and further and further you will grow from people. The greatest form of worship ever demonstrated on earth was not this woman's. She foreshadowed it. She actually, Jesus actually said, she has done this to my burial. Oh, my gosh. That tells you this, that her worship was prophetic. She had the spirit because of her heart and everything she was willing to sacrifice. And she let down her hair, her heart, right? Her, her, her spirit was there. But there was truth in her worship because she anointed him for his resurrection that had not happened. His death hadn't even happened. She didn't come later after he died to anoint the body. She anointed him before. 
but she did it unto his death and his resurrection. She had prophetic revelation of who God was. And so you see in her worship, it's sacrificial. It's full of spirit. It's full of truth. And God received, Jesus received that. But it also only happens when you love God. So how many times I come in here and my heart not loving God? This is when we fail at worship. And worship is about sacrifice. Here's another thing. The more we love God, we can say it as, as much as we want to, but the more we love God, the more sacrificial our lives will become. The sacrifice of your life is not a work. It's just evidence of real love for God. No one's going to make that. In, in, a, in a life that's really in love with God, no one's got to tell you to worship. The minute you were told and you had to do it, that became a work, no longer sacrificial. So it might sound good in the building because now more of us are singing, but if only more of us are singing because we were told we had to, that's the works, trying to produce a sacrifice. It's not coming out of sacrificial love. Real love, sacrifice runs out of. I'm going to close with the scriptures. We read them last week. I want you to see Romans 12 verses 1 through 2 different. To me, this captures the essence of spirit, truth, sacrifice, and this reinforces that worship is not to a certain day of the week, not to a certain time. Worship is not something that you start and that you finish. Worship is something that you live in. Remember I told you that our whole lives are about worship? Let's read Romans 12 verses 1 to 2. It's English Standard Version. Paul says, I appeal to you, brethren, brothers, by the mercies of God. Look at this. To present what? Your songs? Present your hymns? Present your church services? Present your Sundays? Present your Tuesdays? He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And by bodies, he means lives. Present your lives as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God. Look at this. Which is your spiritual worship. Your whole life must be reflecting worship, spiritual love, worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. By, by the testing, you may discern what is the will of God. Look at this. What is good and acceptable and perfect. What God said to Abel should echo to us. What God said to Cain. Cain, if you do what is right, if you simply do what is good, will you not be accepted? So this sermon is not to teach us how worship should look like on the outside. This is service. This, this sermon is not to teach you that we should all look the same in our worship. This sermon is to teach us that worship, true worship, begins with us really loving God. The world can't worship God. You know why? Because the world doesn't love God. This also to let, this, this should let you know the world does not understand our worship. And this also lets you know that the world can't borrow worship. This also should help us know that we shouldn't create worship for people. You know, I wonder how many times we thought, well, you know what, maybe we should do worship this way because of the unbelievers that are going to come. Worship 
is not for people at all. Worship is for God. And only someone who's in love with Jesus can actually worship God. So we should never compromise the truth and the spirit of worship for someone who does not know God because it is impossible for someone who doesn't know God to worship and understand worship. So when we think of worship and when we think of song and when we think of all these things in praise, know that it is on to God. Can they be affected by it? Yes. May they be affected by being in the presence of worship, but know that the worship is not for them. The worship is not for you and I. It's not to make us feel good. Worship is to ascribe glory to God with a fully surrendered heart and the revealed biblical truth of who God is. Today I invite you, not necessarily to worship, but to fall in love with Jesus. He is the resurrection of life. And when you fall in love with Jesus, your life will begin to automatically be a sacrificial worship unto him. Today, I want you to know that Jesus is our Savior. The whole Bible is a story about redemption of a Savior. The church doesn't save you. Your membership card doesn't save you. Team 7 doesn't save you. Volunteering doesn't save you. Singing doesn't save you. Preaching doesn't save you. Doing good work doesn't save you. Only the blood of Jesus saves you. Only the blood of Jesus saves you. Only the blood of Jesus saves us. And it's because of him, even when we die, he will resurrect us. It's promised in his word to do so. And we can spend eternity with God, our Heavenly Father, in worship. Not in a time of worship, but in a state of worship. So today I want to just invite you to trust Jesus who loves you. He is God our Father. He made the ultimate display of worship. He sacrificed himself. Talk about worship. Talk about worship. He laid his own life. No one put him on the altar. He put himself there. Jesus displayed worship before God, surrendering his will. Look, in the garden, he said, not my will, but your will be done. He sacrificed his will. Real worship always has sacrifice. God bless you guys. I love you. I pray that you trust Jesus today. God bless you guys. Amen.